Welcome to EnviroPod, a chance to catch up with all the good things your Department of Public Works and Environmental Services does to maintain and improve the environment in Fairfax County. I'm your host, Bob DeMarco, and on this edition of the podcast, I'm speaking with Ellie Cotting, Deputy Director of Stormwater and Wastewater Divisions. Ellie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bob. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, since I started working here at the county a dozen years ago in communications, I hear a lot about stormwater management and wastewater. Uh, could you give us sort of the very high altitude view of what these two things are and how they differ and how they might be the same? Yes. So uh, wastewater management might be the easier one to talk about. We have, as a as a society, we have managed our wastewater for a long time. We um, recognize right away you don't want it near the houses, right? So in our modern system, we have over 3,000 miles of pipe that conveys the wastewater away from homes and businesses and takes it to one of six different treatment plants, um, either in the county. We have one in the county that the county and the Public Works uh, Environmental Services Department operates. That's the Nomen M. Coal Pollution Control Plant down in Lorton. And then we partner with other plants uh, who receive wastewater as well from, from around the county. So that's our um, wastewater treatment system. And then in the stormwater, at first, uh, people didn't think about stormwater when development first started. And development in the county started, I guess the first boom would have been 1950s. And then we had another boom again in the 1980s. Well, in the 1950s, the only thought for stormwater was to try to keep it away from the homes. Um, in the 1980s, we recognized that we had some responsibility for trying to get the stormwater responsibly to the streams. We were seeing that the streams were starting to erode, and we were seeing the effects on the Chesapeake Bay. And then it was in the 1990s and 2000s that we started recognizing just how much damage we had caused to the bay and the blue crab population and the oysters. And so uh, we started, we being the um, whole community of people who manage stormwater, including the state and federal um, government, started looking at the responsibilities that we should hold people accountable for. So when you develop, how do you account for that extra stormwater that's coming off your property? Uh, so that is what we are charged with here in the Department of Public Works and Environmental Services is now we have the wastewater management system we talked about. We keep the wastewater flowing uh, safely and securely to the treatment plants. Then the treatment plants have to clean it up nice and clean. What they discharge is actually cleaner than what goes than what is already in the stream. Uh, so that's on the wastewater side. And on the stormwater side, it's the safe conveyance of all of the uh, stormwater. And then we are also charged with the stormwater quality on the stormwater side. And what makes it so hard on the stormwater side is wastewater is a pretty closed system. It's whatever goes down the drains. On the stormwater side, you can imagine it's everything that falls on roofs and yards and streets. And so uh, we are charged with trying to minimize the pollution in that water. And, and <clears throat> excuse me, uh, to someone like myself who's pretty unfamiliar with the, with the topic, you can see how it becomes important very quickly when you're developing. And you now, you know, 30 years later, you have 50% more rooftop coverage and you have way more um, impervious surfaces. That water's got to go somewhere, you know, especially uh, when we are close to hurricane season, we get big storms and all that, that does have to go somewhere. Um, you were talking about how uh, discovering that the Chesapeake Bay had been com compromised and some of the wildlife there was the impetus to start you know, this community of, of uh, water managers to start paying attention to this. And I think a big part of that, we see the, um, the trout on, on the uh, street, um, 
what are they called? I'm sorry. The storm drains. The storm drains, yes. You see the trout and it reminds you, this is going somewhere. This isn't just going down the drain. This is going elsewhere. And that elsewhere has fish and wildlife and and that's what sustains us. So uh, it's a good reminder that it's, it's not nagging. It's not a, hey, you should do this. It's a picture of what we stand to lose if we don't do that. That's right. And there's that concept that an ounce of prevention saves a pound of cure. And so, you know, some people aren't realizing that what goes down that storm drain doesn't get treated. It discharges into a creek or a stream. And so when they put their granola bar wrapper down that drain or their pet waste down that drain, it washes directly into the creeks or and, and then eventually into the Chesapeake Bay and has a direct impact on the wildlife. Uh, I have noticed just driving around the county, you see baffles in front of storm drains on the street sometimes. Uh, they kind of look like uh, immense rolled up carpets. Um, is that to stop um, litter and that kind of thing from getting washed down the storm drain and ending up in the bay? That's right. And so when when you see those um, drain filters, that's usually associated with construction. So when you have an active construction site uh, to responsibly control uh, the stormwater that would come off their site that might have sediment, they do the stormwater inlet protection. So the technical name for that big sock of stuffing is inlet protection. Inlet protection. I'll have to remember that so I can impress the people I drive around with. Um, <laughs> Uh, so um, we're we're talking about two different two different types of water, two different types of basically unwanted water, and they go somewhere and they they seek new life. Um, I've been to Noman Coal. I've I've produced many a, a segment at Noman Coal. It's an amazing facility, and you know, frankly, I never thought I'd say that about a wastewater uh, plant, but it's an incredible place to to witness. What happens to wastewater? How does it get does what happens to the wastewater? So the untreated water come, you know, is conveyed through those pipes and pump stations and comes in. And the, the basic steps are you have your large screening where it takes out the biggest stuff. And then it goes through primary treatment where you uh, remove the larger solids. And then it goes through uh, secondary and tertiary and even polishing treatment where you have a biological process that you have bugs that actually do digest uh, the different compounds that are in the water. So things like ammonia associated with human waste um, and other organic compounds will be actually digested by this these bacteria that we use. And then it goes um, through additional treatment after that and filtration and then disinfection. And so disinfection uh, recently started a year plus ago uh, where we're using ultraviolet disinfection now. Um, And then chlorine is added to provide uh, residual chlorine for protection of uh, pathogens downstream, you know. But um, the major disinfection process is now achieved through ultraviolet light, which uh, prevents us from having to use chemicals and is more energy efficient. So you mentioned that the water is cleaner uh, when it comes out of Noman Coal than the water it joins. Is the water that it joins, does it just get released back into nature or does it become our drinking water or how does that work? So it discharges into Pohit Creek, which discharges okay. into the Gunston Bay, which is tidally influenced. And so, okay. um, it. but what what I mean when I say it's cleaner than what it's going into is uh, when you measure what's happening in the creek, it's not going to meet the same stringent limits that our Noman coal plant has to achieve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're talking about how everything you do makes a difference for stormwater. So people put fertilizer on their lawn. Some people don't pick up after their pets. And so when the stormwater hits that land, it washes it right into the creek. And that water is not going through a pollution control plant. And so any of the bacteria associated with that or um, any of the fertilizers wash straight into the creek. And at Noman coal, they've filtered and treated all the water um, to meet stringent limits. And so that's why it's cleaner. 
Okay. But that does not mean um, just because the risk is higher, it, it seems to, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, presuming that the risk is higher in the water that's going um, in the stormwater because all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, human-made waste can end up in there and end up in the bay and that kind of thing. And with the wastewater, it's so tightly controlled and it, and it ends up um, going through this multi-layer process to, to clean before. So it seems like uh, residents of Fairfax County should, um, should be aware of both. Um, but just, just because the stormwater is more of a risk uh, for you and I to, to mess up, that doesn't mean that we should just uh, feel like our wastewater that goes to Nomen Coal, we can just do whatever we want. Because there's a whole length of pipe and infrastructure between your house and that plant that has to be taken care of too. Are there things people should be considering when it comes to wastewater? Yes, I'm glad you pointed that out. So um, very easy to remember, no wipes and no grease down the drain. So when you make your bacon and you have, or whatever else you're doing and you have that cooking grease, you want to pour that into a can or other container, let it solidify and then safely put it in your trash. And you can imagine why, you know how when it solidifies, it you know, it's a solid. So imagine that happening inside your pipe. Like you said, it's we've got to get this stuff through these pipes and they build up with all that, what we call fats, oils, and greases. Uh, so no wipes and no grease down the drain. I, I remember uh, reading an article a few years back about a giant grease ball that was clogging a pipe in London. And you can imagine those those old pipes. And, and it was a, a serious uh, effort to dislodge it and break it down. And uh, and just about that time here at Channel 16, we were doing uh, a fog video, Fats, Oils, and Grease. And, and there was a real-world illustration as to why uh, you need to be conscious of that happening in the news right at the time. I thought that was pretty amazing. Yeah, that, and it's something that you just couldn't imagine if you're not in the business of wastewater. So do these uh, different forms of water that we're talking about, wastewater and stormwater, uh, they play into the environment, uh, obviously. So there has to be some sort of impact on on our climate. Well, what kind of considerations uh, should? How, what effect do they have on our climate? So um, when we when we think about our stormwater and wastewater treatment side, what what we're trying to do on the public work side is minimize the amount of energy that it takes to do the um, stormwater and wastewater management and treatment, and that's our responsible way of minimizing our impact to climate change. Um, when we when we talk about actions that individuals can take, uh, such an important topic and probably. Uh, could talk about it for hours and hours. Um, on the stormwater management side, one of the things that you can do as an individual owner, and, and just like you were saying, Bob, what individuals do for stormwater makes such a difference because the stormwater is such an open system. It's everything that flows over your lawn. Um, doing things like conservation planting and planting of more trees, those are individual factors that you can take on your own property to minimize uh, the heat island effect from urbanized areas and minimizing your impervious area by replacing um, any concrete or pavement that you have with pervious pavers also benefits the stormwater quality as well. Uh, and you're talking about uh, pavers as opposed to, say, a solid concrete driveway paver where the water would fall on, rush off, um, pavers, uh, the water can go between the pavers and sink into the ground and just go straight into the water table, presumably. That's right. There are different types of uh, pervious pavement. So you can have the permeable pavers, like you mentioned. There are actual technologies for uh, permeable asphalt and permeable concrete as well. But more commonly in the residential environment, we have seen the permeable pavers. 
I've seen at, uh, I think it was the I-95 landfill, I, I believe, where they burn trash and, and uh, get some energy out of that. Uh, obviously, it goes through, you know, a battery of filtration and I'm not going to go into that because I don't know about it. But to me, that seems like a very efficient system. You're taking something that's waste, putting it into back into the system and getting something back out of it. Um, is kind of seems like this, uh, the way water is treated is kind of, um, uh, what am I trying to say? That we is, want the same thing to happen, right? We yes. want to, we want to get so, as much good as we can out of it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was mentioning how the stormwater philosophies have kind of changed over the years between the 1950s when it was like, just get it away from the, the houses. And then 1980s, we started to see that we wanted to take care of the quality more. Uh, one of the sayings from the early 2000s from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency was about soak it in. So we want, just like you were saying, we want the rainwater to have an opportunity to soak into the soil and return to the water table. As you mentioned, there's a portion of the um, subsurface water that moves that we call interflow, and that is where it's flowing through the soil before it's getting to the stream. And what does that mean? That means that it's filtering through the soil before it gets to the stream. So it's not running directly off your lawn, picking up all the dirt and sediment and whatever else is on that lawn or sidewalk and going directly in the stream. If it has an opportunity to soak in, then some of the contaminants are removed. And then also it um, flows more slowly to the stream. So, you know, we talk about um, impervious area. If you have a lot of impervious area, the water that hits that rushes off and hits the creek all at once, and it causes the erosion that you see in a lot of our creeks. If it has a chance to soak in and um, percolate in, then it, there's not as much flow to hit the creek all at once. I know the county uh, has spent a lot of money in DPWES, has uh, spent a lot of effort and time uh, managing uh, creeks in the county over the last, I don't know, well, at least since I've been here the last 12 years, um, where uh, creeks that have been eroded through so much. Uh, I'm thinking of right over by Braddock Road and 495, there was a project. I, I, right at the Wakefield Park area, yes, I think, it, with the stream restoration? That stream restoration. Yes, yeah. Uh, that whole area was was ravaged by uh, the power of that stormwater coming through there, um, you know, kind of unabated. And, and uh, the people who are working out there set up all these giant rock baffles and, and different ways to slow the water down and accommodate it. Um, and then I think they had a floodplain and different different ways. That's exactly of... right. Yeah. So one of the goals of stream restoration is to return any overflow. So we're talking about how you get the sudden flow in the stream, and we call that the peak flow. So if you have a very impermeable watershed, then all the rain gets to those creeks too fast and all at once, and you have a huge peak flow. Whereas if you had a lot of you know, um, pervious surface and the water could soak in, it wouldn't all rush off to the same place. So stream restoration can mimic some of the lower flows by returning some of the flow to the floodplains, like you were saying. So when you have an incised stream, the water just keeps cutting deeper and deeper and eroding more and more and the stream banks get steeper and steeper. So you're losing sediment and all the energy of the water that comes in there is doing more erosion damage. And if you can restore the stream, then the higher flows will um, go out onto the floodplain and have a slower, um, it won't rush through the channel. So it's no longer eroding the channel and it's moving more slowly and the sediment can settle out of it before it moves downstream. So one of the goals of stream restoration is to exercise those floodplains and actually use those floodplains. And those floodplains seem very fertile. 
uh, when I've when I've seen them. It's great places to grow. Obviously, they're right next to the water source and sometimes completely submerged in them. Uh, but there are other ways to protect the the resources, especially around waterways in Fairfax County. But it, it presents a bit of a uh, of an issue. Can we talk a little bit about the RPAs? Oh yes, the resource protection areas. I'm glad you mentioned those. Uh, resource protection areas are set aside areas and actually came as an ordinance from the state. So the state requires that Fairfax County identify and then limit uh, development activities in our resource protection areas. And like you were saying, that's when um, the water resources, including tidal and non-tidal wetlands and perennial streams um, and also floodplains, um, are identified as the resource protection area, including a buffer area of 100 feet from the edge of the bank. And so um, because the resource protection areas were set up in many cases after developments happened, we do have some individuals who in, whose entire yards are in the resource protection area. And so like you said, um, since we're trying to minimize the impervious area in that RPA, um, if someone wants to put in a patio or expand their driveway or expand their house and they have RPA on their property, there are ways they can do it, but there are more rules that apply. And just like you said, it can it can cause extra work for that owner to walk through those steps. But if you want to hear more about it and find out if you have RPA on your property, go to the county website. So it's www.fairfaxcounty.gov and search resource protection area. And you will see uh, a frequently asked questions page. There's a link to a YouTube video, a lot of resources to help you understand if you have RPA on your property. And then also if you do what that means for you. It, it seems like also just a really great way to safeguard um, the environment, especially around those critical waterways for flora and fauna. And, um, you know, um, people are ambitious and they want to develop. And I don't think people most of the time have, uh, have uh, bad intentions, but you never know when your design is going to step over that line. And well, maybe we step a little bit further. And if that keeps going, well, we don't have those resources protected anymore. So they seem like pretty critical um, elements. Definitely. And one great thing, a uh, good fortune that the county has had is someone many decades ago identified the need to protect those stream corridors. And so the majority of the land that is in the RPA that is right around the stream corridors in Fairfax County is owned by Fairfax County Park Authority. And they have a natural resources management division who takes care of those streams. So uh, Kudos to the county for having thought of that long ago. Well, how can uh, residents um, or business owners, whether small or large, how can they become a part of this effort and, uh, you know, to help safeguard the environment through these two, through stormwater management and wastewater management? Yeah, so um, I'll start with stormwater management because, like you said, there's so much more uh, effect from individuals on our stormwater quality uh, because it's such an open system. So business owners and residents can take a look at their property and be aware of how the stormwater flows on their property. That's important for their own flood protection, too. Just when it's raining, take a look at how the water flows over your yard. You wouldn't want to do anything to impede that flow, right? So if you have a channel of water that runs through your yard and that's how the stormwater gets away from your house, you wouldn't want to put a fence there or you wouldn't want to put a landscape bed blocking that flow of water. So general awareness like that is important. And then for the water quality piece, there are so many things you can do and there's so many resources. So I'd love to just name a few if sure. that's okay. Just yeah. Go to our website again, that's fairfaxcounty.gov, and you can search on Northern Virginia Soil and Water Conservation District. 
So they're a partner of ours, and they have so many resources for residents, including technical assistance. And when you're on their webpage, you could find this, or you can search directly on the Fairfax County webpage for Fairfax County Conservation Assistance Programs. And Northern Virginia Soil and Water actually works with applicants. You can apply for grants to do conservation practices on your lot. So if you go to their webpage, you can see some of the great conservation plantings you can do, like removing some of your turf, putting in different local and native plants that help that water percolate into the soil faster than if you just have turf. And then in some instances, you could even apply not just for your individual lot, but maybe your um, homeowners association or your nonprofit, your church, can also apply for this kind of assistance. And Northern Virginia Soil and Water Conservation will actually come out and meet you on site and help you understand the different options you have. Uh, but just generally things for owners who don't have time to take that into account um, – plant trees as you can, uh, do the, the environmentally friendly land plantings with the, with the native plants that have a deeper root system and don't require as much pesticide or fertilizer because they're, you know, they grew up in the soil. They, de they developed and evolved in the, in the soils that we have around here, so they tend to do better without as much intervention. Um, some easy, simple things like that. Um, don't litter. That's, that's another one. And again, minimizing how much pesticide and fertilizer you apply. How about uh, I? I just want to, you know, I'm I'm not uh, I don't like neighbors ratting on neighbors, but I I do have uh, a concern. My brother-in-law has a beautiful creek and a little wooded parcel behind his lot, and just upstream is uh, a shopping center about a mile away, and there is just so much garbage that comes down his stream. And uh, so how can a resident like my brother-in-law kind of find out where that's coming from or, or do something more than go out and clean up every, every other weekend? Oh, that's a, that's a tricky one um, because, like you said, it's hard to pinpoint that non-point source pollution because what's coming down that stream could have come from anywhere upstream, right? right. And that shopping center certainly seems like it's a, a, a point source of it, but could we know for sure? Um, so... Uh, one thing that he can do is get in touch with us at Public Works. Um, if you if you go to we, if you go to our webpage, which is fairfaxcounty.gov/publicworks, you'll see areas where residents can report concerns, like repeated litter, or if there's any discoloration in the stream, or if he sees any signs of pollution, soapy water, that kind of thing, mm. he can report that. And then we can do an investigation. When it comes to litter, that one is hard because, you know, people litter on roadways and roadways wash in. And that's very difficult to track back to an individual. Um, but as a citizen advocating with the shopping center, maybe um, if, it, if it's good business for the shopping center to show that they care, making sure that they have uh, responsible management of their trash cans out front, right? Because if they're doing responsible trash management, there will be less litter. Uh, so that's, that's a no-regrets uh, option for your brother. Right, right. Well, thank you for that advice. I appreciate that, and I'll, I'll pass that along to, the, to him. Uh, anything else you'd like to uh, mention that I haven't asked you about this important topic that just keeps coming up. I mean, this is a part of survival in Fairfax County, I think, at this point. So many things, and I would take up even more of your time. But let me uh, just close by saying um, we're all hearing about climate change. And I want to make sure uh, everyone knows that Fairfax County is paying attention to climate change. We have our um, OEEC 
partners in Fairfax County who've published a resilient Fairfax plan. And so residents who are concerned about climate change and how it's impacting weather and storms, and if they're concerned about their own flood safety, they can go to fairfaxcounty.gov and search on resilient Fairfax and find several publications that talk about how we are planning for climate change and get some resources for themselves as well. Great. Thank you so much, Ellie, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Bob. Uh, That was Ellie Cotting, Deputy Director of Stormwater and Wastewater Divisions here in Fairfax County. And thank you for listening to EnviroPod. If you want to get more information about the Fairfax County Department of Public Works and Environmental Services and all that it does, go to fairfaxcounty.gov slash publicworks or call 703-324-5033, weekdays between 8 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. Thanks for joining us again on EnviroPod, which is produced by the Fairfax County, Virginia government.